How you doing, 1130s? Good to see you guys today. Uh, you know, I love having Zach on our team because he's sort of like a double shot of espresso every day. <laughs> and I'm just excited for what God's doing in his life and what God is doing through his life. Uh, and so before I get into my message for today, I did want to say a word about where we're going starting next week. Uh, I've asked my good friend John Whitty to come and lead a series for us. John is a, yeah, we got a couple people excited. John has been uh, one of my theological mentors for years, and uh, John, for decades, served as a missionary in Haiti and in Africa, and then he spent the last nine years as a pastor here at City Church, and earlier this year, he left to start his own ministry that is really the culmination of his life work. And so I'm real excited. Next week, he's going to come and present this to you. It's, the series is called Unstuck, and he's going to focus on helping our people find freedom. That's one of our strategies here. It's, what, it's a part of what we believe it takes to thrive in life, and that is you have to find freedom from the stuff in your past that weighs you down and keeps you uh, hindered. And so John's going to come for three weeks, and he's going to help us get unstuck. And so I hope you'll join us for all three weeks, and I'm real excited about it. Now, uh, th this series, in this series, we've been looking at some of the miracles uh, uh, that John wrote that say something about who Jesus is. Because you know, through miracles, God speaks to us. Through miracles, God reveals his presence. That's one of the ways he lets us know he, that he's there. Through miracles, God demonstrates his power. Through miracles, God expresses his love. And through miracles, I think, God identifies his son. Do you believe in the God of miracles? Do you believe that he sent his son to perform miracles, to break natural laws, to convince us that he does exist and that Jesus is his son? Now, I want you to know, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. Uh, City Church you know, is a safe community of grace for you, whether you call yourself an atheist or a skeptic or a spiritual seeker. We work hard to create this community of grace where you can come and you can get real about your deepest doubts and where you can get real about your deepest struggles. And creating this kind of a safe community of grace uh, is very important to me, especially for those of you who would say you're a little bit skeptical, you're a little bit of a doubter, um, because that's a part of my own spiritual journey. You see, I grew up in the church. So my parents raised me to believe in God and believe in Jesus and the scriptures and all that stuff. But I, I got to a place in my own spiritual journey where I wonder, do I really believe all of this stuff? Or, or like, am I just a Christian because I grew up in the United States and my parents were Christians, and so I'm a Christian because they're Christian, because you know, most Americans are Christians. And like, if I would have grown up in you know, India, would I be a Hindu? If I grew up in Asia, would I be Buddhist? And probably the answer to that is yes. Okay, well then why would I just accept being a Christian because I grew up with Christian parents? And so I began to explore my doubts. I mean, it was a big deal for me to admit to myself, I have doubts. And I'm not sure why I believe any of this stuff. And to be honest, it was a little bit scary to admit that, to admit that I had doubts and that I was skeptical. 
And uh, like, I wasn't sure how would my family and friends feel if I didn't land where they were, you know? And uh, so I began to just explore all of the different great world religions with an open mind. And I also explored, as I was exploring those religions, I went to UTSA, I was a philosophy minor, so like I took every, every uh, class on religion I could, you know, world religions and philosophy religion, and I, I read as much as I could during this season. But I also did explore Christianity. I wanted to know, is there any valid reason to believe in it? Is there any logical reason to believe in Christianity? I wasn't even sure if I would find any. And along the way, I had to wrestle with evidence. Evidence presented by eyewitnesses of some of the miracles that Jesus did. And somewhere along the way, I had to make a decision about what I believe happened. And as I suggested to you in this series, I think we do that more often in life than we realize. I mean, frankly, our entire jury system is built upon the premise that you can get a group of people uh, into a jury pool and present evidence about what you think happened and that they would make a decision even though they didn't see it happen. You know what I'm saying? So when we kicked off the series, I told you about the time that I actually served on a jury, uh, a pool, a, a jury with uh, you know 11 other people on a murder trial. And if you weren't here, I'll give you just a, a summary of, of what happened. So for a week, the prosecutors presented their case. Uh, they said that this man broke into a garage uh, where a husband and wife melted gold coins and made gold jewelry out of them. They said that this man, the accused, attacked them and left them for dead. When police caught the man, he had gold coins that matched the gold coins uh, that the, the couple used to make jewelry. They found jewelry that matched the kind of jewelry that the couple made. They also found the murder weapon with uh, the couple's DNA on it, and they found DNA on the man's clothing that they found. And then to top it off, the wife ended up surviving the attack, and she identified him as the man who attacked she and her husband. So anyway, after a week, the judge uh, told us, the jurors, based on all of the evidence that you have seen, I'm asking you to make a decision about what you believe happened. Even though none of us actually saw what happened, but based upon the credible evidence of bystanders, of eyewitnesses who gathered the evidence, they asked us to make a decision. And so as a juror, I made a decision. And along my journey, as I looked at the evidence for Christianity, I also had to make a decision. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. And so we've been looking at the credible eyewitness from one eyewitness who saw Jesus perform multitudes of miracles. He's a bystander named John. And John was one of the core disciples uh, of Jesus. He traveled with Jesus for three years and he saw Jesus perform dozens and dozens and dozens of miracles that led him to believe that Jesus is the son of God. You see, for him, seeing was believing. And as he got older, he realized, you know, everybody may not be able to see these miraculous signs that I got to see, so I need to document what I saw and give this as evidence so that others would look at my documentation of what I saw and so that they would believe too. And so 
Uh, John's account of Jesus' miracles in his life was, was put together by John and passed down through uh, church history in a document that we call the Gospel of John or the Good News of John. And uh, if you've been with us throughout the series, we've looked at six miraculous signs. His account is organized around those signs, and now today we're going to look at a seventh and final miraculous sign. Only this miraculous sign, Jesus didn't perform for someone else. This miraculous sign actually happened to him. But before there was the miracle, there was suffering. 2,000 years ago on a dark Friday, Jesus fulfilled a part of his destiny. Jesus lived his purpose. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had mentioned that his impending death would serve a purpose. You see, Jesus said that his death would serve all people. He described himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He also referred to himself as a ransom who would give his life for many. And it did cost Jesus. You see, Jewish leaders arrested Jesus on that dark Friday, handed him over to Roman soldiers who brutally beat him, and then they crucified Jesus on the cross for hours in agony. Soldiers eventually took a spear and they pierced his side to make sure that he was actually dead. And once they were sure he was dead, they allowed family and friends to take Jesus' body down off the cross. They wrapped him in strips of linen and they placed him in a tomb with a large stone rolled in front of it. And then they posted uh, Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. That was on a Friday. Then three days later, it was Sunday. This is John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and we know that this is John. Uh, this is John's way of referring to John in his own writing. Um, anyway, uh, so the disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, this miraculous sign begins with Mary Magdalene. So let me give you just a little bit of her story. Mary Magdalene first appears in Jesus' story as a person with a troubled past. She suffered a lot in life. And when she believed in Jesus, her life changed dramatically. She, she found a kind of freedom she had not known before that. And the scriptures tell us that she became a part of this interesting group of women including Jesus' mom, who actually traveled with Jesus for part of his ministry. And so she traveled around with Jesus uh, from that point forward. And so uh, she went to the tomb now to, to go to the graveside to remember him. I mean, she's mourning his loss. And I think it's important to notice in this account that she assumed his body had been stolen. I mean, what else could have happened, right? Notice what happened next. Uh, so she goes and she tells Peter and John, this is verse three and four. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
Now, isn't that such a guy thing to notice? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Of all of the details about this account that John could have made sure got into this account, he made sure that everybody knew that when he and Peter raised to the tomb, I won. <laughs> it's so awesome. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I believe this account, because it's such a competitive guy thing to throw into the scriptures. Anyway, well, after seeing the empty tomb with strips of linen, Peter and John saw it, they, weren't, they didn't understand what had happened. And so they went back to the house of where they had been staying. They locked the doors. But Mary went back out to the tomb and she was devastated. I mean, now not only had Jesus died, but now she thought somebody stole his body. But then something happened that changed everything. This is verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned her, uh, toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It was a miracle. Jesus had risen from the dead. And when Mary saw him and heard him call her by name, she knew Jesus was with her. And it changed everything. Instead of tears of sorrow, she had tears of joy. And Mary became the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead. And I think that's so important. It's hard for us to grasp how important this was, that Jesus appeared first to a woman. You see, in, in Jesus' day in the first century, women's uh, testimony was not considered very credible. In fact, in Jewish uh, law, if a, a female gave a testimony in court, it was not considered near as credible as if a male did. It was just, I'm sorry ladies, but it was just an example of gender discrimination in their day. And so I think it's very significant that Jesus decided, now that I've risen from the dead, the first person I'm gonna show myself to is a woman. I'm gonna show this culture. <laughs> and uh, so he shows himself to Mary, Jesus, I hope you get that Jesus is a social reformer. That's a part of his movement, to change things. Second thing I want us to notice about uh, Jesus' appearance to Mary is he didn't appear just to any woman. See, he could have appeared to his mother, you know, and that's what I would have thought. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, who had experienced a lot of baggage in her life. And I think he appeared to Mary Magdalene first because he wanted to, to like say something about the kind of movement that he began. You see, Jesus' movement, it's not just for neat people with neat lives who never really experienced too many challenges in life. Jesus' movement is for messy people with messy lives who have messy baggage and need to experience the messy grace that we all need. And when Jesus appeared to Mary, 
It changed everything. So Mary now, she's at the tomb. She runs back to the house where Peter and John are and all the disciples, and she tells them that she has seen Jesus risen from the dead. So not only is Mary the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead, she's also the first person to give an eyewitness account of his resurrection, right? And so if some of you know the story, when, when Mary tells the disciples, I've seen Jesus risen from the dead, do they believe her? No. They won't believe it. They can't believe it. And I don't know if it was because she was a female or what, but they refused to believe her. Notice how Jesus responds to his own disciples, his own handpicked disciples who rejected her eyewitness account. This is so interesting. Uh, verse 19. On the evening of that first day, okay, so Jesus appears to Mary in the morning. Now it's the evening, same day. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And it's very evident that the disciples were not expecting to see Jesus. But when they saw him, when they saw his hands, when they saw his side, they knew it was him. When they saw, they believed. And their fear turned to faith, and their sadness turned to joy. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. But one of the disciples wasn't there. And I think Jesus did this on purpose. Okay, follow with me. Jesus could have appeared to them anytime he wanted to, right? I mean, he's Jesus. And, but he chooses to appear to them when he knows one of the disciples is missing. And I think, I think he's setting up something. It's this whole eyewitness account thing. And so Jesus appears to the disciples, but he appears when one of the disciples is missing. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, I just love Thomas. You know, I think he gets a bad rap. I love Thomas because he says what a lot of us would like to have said in his, uh, in his position. Well, sure, yeah, y'all believe because you saw. I won't believe until I get to see. You got to see, I want to see too. And in this moment, Thomas expresses his doubt. And can I just say, isn't it cool that the disciples, the rest of the disciples, they don't mistreat him, they don't kick him out. They let him stay among them, which I, I find interesting. I think that says something about what Jesus' movement is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a safe place where people can express their doubts. Thomas did. And I think the part of why Jesus allowed this whole scenario to happen is he wanted a person among his core disciples who was more skeptical at heart 
so that people, all people throughout all human history would have someone to identify with if they have a little bit of skepticism in them, if they struggle with doubts too, just like me, and I know just like some of you. I think it says something about Jesus' movement that's very significant. Well, anyway, Jesus then gives Thomas a reason to believe. This is verse 26. A week later, okay, so now it's been seven days. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, he says, peace be with you. And then he looks over at Thomas. And don't you know Thomas's heart's really beating now? You know, he's going, row, row. <laughs> he looks at Thomas and he says, okay, you, put your finger, finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. When Thomas saw Jesus risen from the dead, he believed. His doubts turned into faith. His skepticism turned into confidence. And what he saw so impacted him, it changed his life. It gave him a renewed vision for his life. Thomas was so impacted by the resurrection of Jesus that he became one of the first disciples to leave the Judea area, and he traveled to the nations far to the east of Israel. And he spread the good news about what he saw. He said, I saw Jesus risen from the dead, and he can give you resurrected life too if you will believe in him. And I have personally met believers in nations like India and Armenia and Iran who all trace their spiritual heritage, their belief in Jesus back to Thomas and the ministry that he had in their nation. And Thomas ultimately gave his life as a martyr in India because of what he saw Jesus do. And I think that it's so important that a skeptic like Thomas became so convinced of what he saw that he spread the good news of Jesus all throughout those nations to the east of Israel. And here's what's interesting, skeptics. Skeptics today who don't believe in God, don't believe in religion, and certainly don't believe in Christianity, they agree and they admit that they have no way to explain the explosive growth of Christianity in the first three centuries uh, uh, as the movement spread they have no way of explaining it because the Christian movement, it, we, the Christian movement did not have a lot of money. They didn't have, have a lot of political power. This was not a military movement. In fact, it was a pacifist movement. And this movement grew and exploded despite facing brutal persecution for decades and decades. Why would people continue to cling to their claim that they saw Jesus risen from the dead and that he could give them eternal life? Why would they leave their careers for a dead man? Why would they risk their lives and give their lives for a hoax or a lie? Folks, I propose to you that these men and these women saw Jesus risen from the dead and it so impacted them that they gave their lives for what they saw. And they began the movement Jesus called the church. And their testimony continues to this day. Well, when, uh, 
When Jesus told Thomas to touch his hands and his side, Thomas believed. He gave Thomas a reason to believe. But then Jesus said something to Thomas that is really not for Thomas. He said something to Thomas that's for us. This is verse uh, 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, he told Thomas, he said, look, okay, I gave you what you said you needed to believe in me, but Jesus only gave about 500 plus people the opportunity to see him risen from the dead. The apostle Paul was also one. So it was about 500 plus people that got to see Jesus risen from the dead. So for them, seeing literally was believing. And so you might ask the question, well, okay, then why am I supposed to believe what Jesus addresses us? He said, blessed are those who don't see me and yet still believe. Well, why should we believe? Well, John answers that question in the next two verses. John writes in verse 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We don't believe because of seeing Jesus. We believe because of seeing the evidence. We believe because of the written documents by eyewitnesses. And through eyewitnesses like John, and isn't it interesting that he starts writing uh, to us, the reader? It's one of the few times in Jesus' story where the author actually begins to speak to us, the, the reader. And he says, look, all of those people who whoever read my account, I'm writing this so that you would see my eyewitness account of Jesus' miracles and his resurrection so that you would believe. So that you would believe he is the son of God. So that you would believe he can forgive your sins. So that you can have a resurrected life too. So you can believe that Jesus can give you an, an abundant life here and now, an eternal life one day. And you will have a resurrected body which will have no more pain, no more suffering, no more, more sorrow, no more death. Isn't that the kind of life that you want? That's the kind of life John is talking about. And I found these reasons. Yes, thank you. I found these reasons so convincing in my journey. I came to the place in my own story where, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't understand everything about everything, but I did understand something about something. And I became convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. And that these men who gave their lives like Peter and John and Thomas, they would not have done that for a hoax. I think they gave their lives and they gave their lives for Jesus' movement because they really did see what they said they saw. I believe because of their eyewitness account. And I made a decision. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Over these seven weeks, I've done my best to present the evidence to you that Jesus is the Son of God and that he loves you and he offers you eternal life. And I'm asking you to make a decision and to believe in him today. Let's pray together. <clears throat> if you're ready to believe in Jesus, I encourage you just to 
to whisper that as an affirmation of what you believe. Just say, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you. I believe you've risen from the dead. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you can give me eternal life. Yes. And Lord, uh, I, I pray for those who have believed in you today, those in the video cafe, those watching online, those here in the auditorium, and I pray that you would do what you promised. You said you would forgive our sins and remove the burden of guilt. And then you promised that you would give us your spirit to live within us. I ask that you would fill them with your spirit. And then I ask that you would see within their hearts and minds that they are now your children. And I ask that you would give them life, an abundant life here and now, an eternal life one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.